The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I used to care so much about portraying a perfect life and acting like everything was okay when really things were far from it. I was secretly battling anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. So it was a lot. I'm Victoria Garrick, former Division I athlete, mental health advocate, and host of RealPod. Every Wednesday, I sit down with celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, and more to talk about the inner thoughts and feelings that we're all struggling with. So leave the filters and facetunes at the door and join me on RealPod. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Journaling and writing isn't an uncommon therapeutic practice. For years, psychologists and therapists have used writing as a modality to aid in the healing process. Research actually shows that writing may also offer physical as well as emotional benefits. Writing is a tool to help manage stress, anxiety, clarify thinking, reinforce learning, boost creativity, and inspire problem solving. A recent study done at the University of Texas at Austin and Syracuse University revealed that writing about emotional struggles actually has the ability to boost our immune functioning as well. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up literally told me that writing saved her life. A successful poet and published author, she started using writing as a way to heal in her teens at the suggestion of a life-changing therapist she was seeing. You may recognize her from her wildly popular Notes to Self series, posted and reposted hundreds of thousands of times all over the internet. They look like little clear sticky notes with black Sharpie writing that she holds up and snaps a picture of. They are gentle reminders to herself and, well, all of us, like this one. Dear self, I forgive you for settling when you were uncertain of your power. Yep, I'm talking about Alex L. We talk about what is in our emotional toolbox. By the way, this is a great time to start pondering what exactly is in yours. We talk about joy as an act of resistance, self-celebration, writing life into existence, therapy, reparenting ourselves, especially as we actually parent our children, and sincerely allowing for mistakes. I hope you have a journal nearby and a pen that you love because this episode will definitely inspire you to get writing. So before we begin, there is a small section in the start in which I kind of call looking in and it's where I get to ask you some rapid fire style questions don't put too much thought into them. It's just a way for me and the listeners to get to know you a little more intimately. Okay. Is there a book that you have read that has actually changed and shaped the way that you live your life? Mm, Yes. It's by Abigail Thomas and it's called A Three Dog Life. And it is a phenomenal memoir about acceptance and love and the different shifts and transitions that we go through in partnership. And I don't want to spoil the book, but it's just, it is just phenomenal. And it's the first book that I've like wanted to read over and over again. I cannot wait to read it. I have had a book in my past. My favorite book is by Murakami and Mm -hmm. Kafka by the Shore. And I remember reading that book and every page that turned, I was really, I was equally sad for each page that turned because I didn't want to get to the end, but I was also equally as excited 
because it was so good. Yeah. And then I realized you could always read books again and again and again and get something different from it. And like, that's like what motherhood's kind of like. I don't know, like every day that goes by, I'm so excited to see my son grow, but I'm also equally like a little, a little sad because I don't want the days to go by so quickly. And I liked the day before too. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. I have three daughters and wow, you are right about that. Yes. Wow. Okay. So people think that I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Ooh. <laughs> People think that I am super zen and peaceful all the time, but I am actually pretty spicy and <laughs> confrontational. And it's something that I, you know, am, I constantly, I am in process on working through that part of my personality. <laughs> um, and I share that because I think so many people think I walk around like burning sage all day with my head wrapped barefoot and, you know, really, you know, just zend out. And there are days when I am not that person. There are most days that I am not that person. So I just wanted to give a realistic view of the type of firecracker I can be. <laughs> oh, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. Okay, three words to describe yourself as a teenager, like the high school years. Oh, sad, unsure, and lost. Mm. When is the last time that you cried? Oh my gosh. Me and my husband both cried listening to an NPR segment a couple of days ago about the impact that COVID-19 has had on this man and his family. And we were in the car driving to the park with the girls and sobbing. So two mm. days ago, you know, it's, it's interesting, like how people's stories can move us. And immediately I reached out to NPR trying to find contact for this man to, to help him and his family. And so many others did the same. And we actually got his email address and are going to be trying to support him and his family. And so in some way, so it was, you know, happy tears that we found him and then happy tears and then sad tears about, you know, that story, but just how we're never alone in our struggles and that we can all connect in some way, even if it's through an NPR show. Wow. That is so beautiful. And that like movement of emotion actually, you know, pushed into gear action. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Without too much thought or judgment, what are three things that have brought you joy today? Today, I'm getting up early before the kids and sneaking downstairs for a writing session that I am way overdue on, answering my gratitude journal with kindness, and my morning cup of coffee that I put clove and nutmeg in. Mm. So good. <laughs> so warming. I yes. Love, love it. So as an author and a poet... How did you come into writing as sort of, and maybe I'm being presumptuous, but it feels like writing as a way of healing? Oh, yeah. Writing as a way of healing. Absolutely. Writing by way of therapy, even more mm. so. When I was a teenager, I um, started going to therapy and then kind of fell off. As I got older, I went back and I found this amazing therapist who encouraged me to use writing as my pathway to healing and exploration of my voice. And I did. And she changed my life. Now it really fills me up to be able to give other people the gift of writing and storytelling and story sharing without guilt or shame in the work that I do as an author and a facilitator of writing workshops. So 
yeah, that's how it came to be through therapy. So you were young and in your early teens. Early teens is when I started. And then when I had my first daughter, I was 18. And I went back to therapy to sort out a lot of things emotionally. And I have arrived to where I am today because of that therapist. Wow. So that is like such a great segue into my next question, which is what is your relationship with mental health? Oh my goodness. An ongoing relationship. And the reason why I say that is because I take deep pride in overcoming a lot of the things that I overcame, meaning depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. and just being unsure of what my purpose and my calling was. And it was Mm -hmm. by way of therapy and writing practice and owning my truth that I've been able to grow. I mean, I'll be 31 on Saturday, July 25th. So it's like a lot of reflection happening Mm -hmm. right now. And I really pride myself in trusting that I had a purpose in this life Mm -hmm. because for so long I felt like I didn't. So, you know, now as as a mother of three, a 12-year-old, a two-year-old, and a 10-month-old, it really prides me to be the example to them that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I, I completely understand that. You know, I study and talk a lot about the notion and practice of optimism. And for me, I can't define the word optimism without using this word called resiliency. And I wonder when I speak to guests that come in and we talk about optimism, I always wonder, like, first of all, how do you define optimism? Are you an optimist? And after kind of sharing with you what kind of definition I use, can you name a time or describe a time where you felt was a pretty dark time and how you sort of got your way through it and worked through that struggle? Mm. I remember being, I think I was around 21 and just feeling really overwhelmed with with life and going through this transition of, you know, growth that felt really scary. I was losing a lot of people around me just because we were outgrowing each other. So my friendships were shifting. I was changing in these really big ways that my family didn't quite get or understand. I was actually kind of mocked by them for transitioning into my higher self. And I also knew that I wanted to be married and I wanted to have a life partner and I wanted to have more children. And I wanted that experience to be rooted in love of both self and commitment. So being 21 and going through all those really big things, I found myself being really sad that I was going to have to walk this path of self-exploration by myself. Mm. I thought that it only made sense to have community around us, you know, when we make these big leaps. But in my work and in my own study and research, it's that we often are called to do things alone when the biggest lesson is waiting on the other side. Mm -hmm. So while I was really scared (laughs) to take that step into, you know, not having any friends, not having a partner, not really being understood by those around me, I was also extremely optimistic because I knew the life that I wanted to have. And now I have the language to 
to look back and say, other people not understanding my pathway is not my work, right? Mm -hmm. My work is to stand tall in what I know to be true about myself and the, the lengths of which I want to, I want to go in life. So that was a really challenging time. It was very, very scary. But on the other side of that, I found my resilience because I needed to be by myself. You know, my friend group changed and I found some really amazing sister friends that I'm still friends with today, 10 plus years deep. My family is doing their own shifting and changing, specifically my mother. So that's been really interesting to see um, people come into their power. And then I got married when I was, oh my gosh, how old was I? We've been married for four years together for seven, me and my husband. So I also, you know, called in the partner that I wanted by first being the partner that I wanted for myself. Mm -hmm. So that's really the journey through optimism, loneliness, and resilience that I've I've walked through over the past seven, eight, nine years. That's incredible. And was a big part of sort of your resiliency and growth writing. And oh, yes. Writing as a form of self-inquiry and self-exploration. Yes, absolutely. I actually wrote my first book when I was 23. And that book was a collection of little poems and love notes to my future self and to my future husband. And it was just for me, really. And I didn't have a platform back then. I was just sharing my work online. And then a friend was like, you know, you should put this in a collection. And I did, not thinking anything of it, just my little notes to self and poems and things. And so many folks resonated. And I often say, that I wrote my husband into existence. I wrote mm. this life into existence, but not just on the level of like, put it on the page and it comes true, but put it on the page and hold yourself accountable and do the work that it takes to shift and grow. And that book, oh my gosh, when I look at it now, I'm, I'm multiple books in and, and multiple journals in, but when I look back at that book, I'm like, oh my goodness, like this was my heart and soul soul's longing and to see that people are still buying the book years later it kind of makes me cringe but it also makes me feel like you know it, it's special still that is so incredible it's so important to know and to know your worth and to know what you want and to know you know what you want to achieve that's a huge part of it and to write it down and to talk about it and to visualize mm -hmm. it another part of it but a huge part of it that people often disregard is the actual hard work it takes to get there Yes. And the action it takes to get there. Not only is that sort of really unfortunate that that piece is missing a lot of times in people's process, but also it's it's kind of, it's like a whole piece of the joy that you're missing because after in which you do manifest something, I think many people forget to take the time and space to really marinate in what they've manifested mm. and to really think about the work and everything they did. It wasn't just that it dropped into their lap. It was that right. they made it happen. And it takes hard work and it takes self-exploration and it takes mindset shift and, and a practice every day. And so, and it takes hardship, kind of like you realizing you had to go at it alone. And that must might've been uncomfortable, but now in retrospect, knowing what was on the other end, pretty incredible. And yeah, writing, I mean, it's such a, such a powerful tool. I often talk about resources, yeah. uh, things that we already possess that are within us. And writing is, you know, breath is one of them and perspective shift is another and so on. But writing is such a big one. 
Mm-hmm. It is. And oftentimes I tell people that writing saved my life and it's through being able to put my pain on the page, but also my joy on the page. That's really shown me the importance of coming home to myself, resilience, and the power of who I am as a human being, especially, you know, growing up feeling like I really didn't, you know, have a voice and feeling kind of just devastated with you know, the family that I was born into. It's a lot of things that come to the surface for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to say that writing has shown me to hold space for compassion for not only myself, but for other people, other people who've been involved in my story. So it's, you know, it's a pathway to ourselves. And I tell my students and clients all the time, like, put it down on the page, see it, look at it, touch it, read it out loud. And then do the work. And if you need support in doing the work, then that means, you know, wonderful that you're on the right track and you can name what you need. You brought up something interesting. And I think oftentimes when we do the work, we and even with writing, we think, oh, something comes to me when I'm experiencing an uncomfortable feeling. But how much are you an advocate for also writing when you're feeling joy and things are going well? Often. That needs to be in the emotional toolbox too, is joyful writing. And so I just actually sent out a newsletter the other day, yesterday. It was about self-celebration. So Mm. writing practice as self-celebration. And what's really interesting is that so many people are able to put down their pain, but it's really hard for folks to put down their joy for some reason. And I had some folks in my course mention we had a topic on joy and writing letters to our joy and calling it out and celebrating it. And they're like, this is so hard. It's hard because I don't know if I'm really worthy of celebrating this. Mm -hmm. And it's also hard because like, if I put it down, like on the page, what if it disappears and goes away and leaves me? Right. So it's that it's the fear of facing our joy that I think scares folks the most, but I encourage people to do it because we are worthy of that. We're worthy of self-celebration. We are deserving of many moments of joy and big moments and I don't think it's talked about enough in the culture, you know, to to celebrate the happy times that come up and understand that there can be grief and there can still be joy. So moving through those two things, a lot of my community talk about, you know, the guilt that comes along with celebrating when there's moments of grief, especially with COVID-19 and mm-hmm. the, the social justice movements, especially yeah. me as a Black woman and having a largely diverse BIPOC audience, folks feel like, oh my goodness, if I'm celebrating joy, then I am not, you know, doing the work on the front lines. And if anything, joy is an act of resistance. So I tell people, lean into that, lean into that. That is also a revolution in our bodies. You are so speaking my language. This is what my entire life's work is on. And my whole career and my passion and calling is really, you know, I study the holistic side, but also evidence-based science of joy and happiness mm-hmm. and optimism. And that's exactly what I find. And what's in the research is that it's much easier for us as humans to highlight the things that are not going so well, or we need to improve on. And of course there's benefit in that, but it's very difficult for us. And it's uncomfortable for us to talk about the things that are going well, or that bring us joy and it's actually such a huge piece of resiliency and optimism building. And it's kind of what we talked about a little bit before, but celebrating wins, you Mm -hmm. know, small or big. And 
and we our brain kicks into gear of problem solving to to figure out new problems if we've given ourselves the chance to actually celebrate you know the wins that we've already done it kind of is like oh well then it's worth it you know right. i'll keep going and work through these struggles because you know in the end when something's figured out and you celebrate it then you do it more and so i think that's another piece of it that is so important that is overlooked what was the first can you remember what was the first piece of work that you shared publicly hmm. probably in an in a note to self i started sharing those on instagram and that was so long ago and i wanted other people to be able to share their notes to self. So it was kind of like this hashtag thing when Instagram was like really new. And I don't ex- remember the exact piece, but it started as a community effort to get other people writing. I love the notes to self. These notes of paper that are small notes, but big meaning to yourself that you post on Instagram. And so many people are deeply inspired and can relate in a very deep way to to the notes that you're, that you're writing. How was that transition from writing predominantly for yourself and, you know, using writing as a healing tool for self-inquiry and self-exploration and to, to really go within transitioning then to putting your heart and your soul and being so vulnerable and putting it out publicly? I had a friend of mine tell me to stop hoarding my story. Mm. And I had also gotten to a point where I knew that the stories that I had in me deserved to be shared because there's no way that I'm the only person going through these things. So it was really a pathway to allowing other folks to explore their voice and to find some camaraderie in their process. And it was pretty scary at first, but also... I remember like my husband telling me this years ago, like you were made for this work. Mm. So whenever I doubted myself, whenever I wasn't sure, he would let me have my moment. And then he would say, just remember you're made for this work. Whatever the work was at the time, it was placed in front of me because I could handle it. And I think that that is a gentle reminder that I will always carry with me, especially, you know, coming from my partner, who is also my mirror, who is raising children with me, who is a major part of my growth. We've been together since I was 23, 24. And it's like being able to share that space with people who see me and also people who, you know, may not know who I am, but they come to my Instagram or they read my books or they're in a course or their friend of a friend knows my work. They're like, I can see myself in her. And that is the, the reason why I do the work that I do is so other people can see themselves. Yeah, that is so powerful. Given this time and, you know, we're all going through a collective period of trauma and a collective period of grief. I also think equally it's a time of collective resiliency and growth. And we are obviously, you know, learning so many tools and adaptation and things about ourselves that we would not have learned before. And so there's strength in that. But how have your words, either for yourself or what you've been seeing for others, been helpful during this time? Mm. Recently, I had a conversation with Megan Rapino, and we spoke about this exact thing, the collective grief, the collective trauma. And then 
the collective healing that can also occur. And what I really admire about my community on and offline is the willingness to address the collective pain and also the willingness to stand collectively as we heal and mend. Mm -hmm. And I think that people resonate with the work that I am sharing because people are trying to collectively heal, heal themselves so that they can heal their communities. And I often say, I'm a big advocate of self-care. I think a lot of people know me because of the self-care piece, but self-care is community care. And when we're able to look at that as a recharge and a reset, it makes the healing that we do together and individually so much more powerful. Our frontliners couldn't be on the front lines if they're not at actively taking care of themselves. I tell people all the time, make sure that you are taking a beat, take a step back, take a breath, come back into your body so that you're not just simply reacting to react, but you are actually thinking and responding in a way that is productive. And I just want more people to, to lean into self-care as community care and collective healing by, you know, showing up for themselves. I, mm -hmm. There's in motherhood and in wife life, I tell people all the time, if I'm emptied, there's no way that I can show up as my best self in my duties as a mother and a wife. And, you know, I'm also a business owner. I work for myself full time and have for years. So it's like, if I was empty, I would be doing a really crap job at showing up for my work and those around me who I love and adore. And I want to have the fullest and most intentional parts of me. How do you fill up? Yeah. How do I fill up? I take a lot of deep breaths. I take space. I move my body. And when, I'm, when I mean take space, I know that there's a lot of privilege here because I am, you know, I'm married. I can go out and take space. There's some folks who are not able to do that and I completely get it and understand. But when you get a moment of silence, even if that's at the top of the morning or the end of the day, really lean into that. And that's what I've been doing. I've been gardening. So I have like my plant babies outside. We have peppers growing and onions and squash. So that feels really fulfilling to me. And it's getting back into my body with my breathing. If that's one thing that I can control, it is my breath. So when I'm feeling, you know, super activated emotionally about something, or when I'm feeling overwhelmed with the workload and the three babies at home during a pandemic and everyone's bored and nap times and all of those things, it's like, okay, what can I do right now to come back home to myself? And in those moments, it is breathing. And that is not to sound super woohoo or anything, but that is truly what saves me some days. It's just deep breathing. And then it's so funny. My two-year-old will say, mommy, are you calming down? And I'll say, yes, Isla, I'm calming down. She goes, okay, let's take a deep breath. <laughs> and we breathe together. So it's like our children are watching. Yes. My three-year-old, I admittedly have been having waves of feeling extremely empty mm -hmm. and partly just because I think we're all prone to it and we have to come back to ourselves, but also as a product of the circumstances right now and not being able to take a lot of the space that I once really was able to. Yeah. But he looked at me and I had one of my lowest mom moments. You know, I, I snapped, I was irritable. I was completely empty. I reacted in a way that I never would have and never wanted to. And he looked at me and said, mama, I think you need to take a deep breath and let it go. And I was like, oh. oh, and then you just melt. The 
Oh, I just melted the tears. And, and he had like used something that I was teaching him on me. And like, when we see our kids do that, it's just, you know, or when he tells me like constantly, mama, you need to put the phone down. Mm. And I'm like, but I can't, I, you know, I'm doing, he's like, it can wait. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, like it, it actually can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of that, I know you talked about your own childhood and wanting to give your daughters, you know, certain tools and a type of exploration of themselves and space for that uh, and self-love that maybe you weren't given the space for. How do you teach your daughters self-love and self-care? Hmm. So we really practice this with my oldest because she's 12 and she'll be 13 in November. And she's at that age where she needs a little support in that area. And she's a phenomenal artist, self-taught, phenomenal, phenomenal. And she can be really hard on herself. She's also a perfectionist. So she's the type of student, straight A student, if she gets a B, the world is over, right? So it's like finding this balance of, yes, honey, you can be disappointed. And yes, you're still amazing. Yes, you can really have screwed that up. And also, yes, you can try again. So that is how we work through things with with her. Her name is Charlie. And just giving her the space to like be super sensitive and emotional because that's who she is and not criticize her for that. And also give her the tools to recenter when she's ready and when she needs to. As far as the babies go, it's like they just watch us. So we have to be really mm-hmm. mindful, you know, me, my husband and our and big sister have to be really mindful of how we interact and how we speak and all of those things. So it's just making sure that this house radiates love, even in chaos. Mm-hmm. Something that I tell my husband a lot is like, especially like if I've had to discipline our oldest or, you know, if our toddler is just being her trying two-year-old self. And I have a moment of like, oh my gosh, this kid is going to just like be the death of me. <laughs> He's, and I just have these moments like in motherhood, as you mentioned, I often say to my husband, like, I just want them to know they're loved. Even when they get in trouble, even when they drop the ball, even when they're hanging on our last nerves, I just want them to know that they are loved because that is not something I had. I didn't know that I was loved. It was like, you mess up, you suck, bye. You know, that, that's how it felt to me, you know? And also there was a lot of physical abuse in my home growing up. So like, you mess up, you're getting whooped, you're getting sent away and I, and I don't love you. Like that is really the trauma that I have walked through. Mm-hmm. So I never want my children to feel the wrath of violence or upset to the point of cussing out a child and like the crazy things that I went through because my mom was a single mom for a long time. She was trying to climb the corporate ladder. She also did not have the tools to handle her emotions well. We actually had a long talk about this because I write a lot about my childhood in my new book, After the Rain. It's just like wanting my children to know that no matter what they do, me and my husband are going to love them hard and that they are not disposable and that they can love themselves and that they can stand in their power. And they can make mistakes. And that they can make mistakes. Yes. Make mistakes. Mistakes are a part of life. I love how much you illustrate, whether it's teaching your kids or for your own self, but how much you illustrate this concept that I so profoundly teach from a research perspective, but also just with my clients 
but it's this idea of holding two emotions at once and differing emotions and the idea of emotional duality. Mm -hmm. So you can be disappointed and joyful at the same time, kind of what we talked about before, but also with a child, like you could be upset with your child, but also love them hard. Mm-hmm. or they could be upset about something and still love the person that they're angry with or the mm-hmm. person that, you know, didn't let them use the hose as long as they wanted to. <laughs> since that's what my son's really into right now. <laughs> that's such an important piece. And it's part of our human existence is that we do feel two emotions that completely counter indicate each other at the same time. And that confuses us. But the more readily we learn that that is part of our existence and it is normal it's a learning piece that's like an aha moment. Like I can hold these two at the same time. That doesn't make me crazy. It doesn't make me confused. It doesn't make one of them right or wrong. I don't have to push one of them away. And right. so, right. you know, it's it's really like a holistic approach to that. To that point, if you don't mind, of course, I find that in parenthood, and you may feel the same, that as I parent my children, I'm reparenting myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been actually doing a lot of inner child journaling work these days because around my birthday, I'm always super triggered. So I've been trying to figure out ways to just hold space for the grown woman I am now and the little Alex that is still nestled inside. And something that we've actually been practicing with our oldest is allowing her the space to let her know when she's disappointed in us or when we've hurt her feelings, or when we've let her down. And to course correct when those things happen. I often, I mean, I was raised that children don't have feelings. You know what I mean? Like you sit down, you shut up, right? And you do as I say, but that's not how we're raising our kids. So when, you know, when adversity has struck and my daughter, our oldest is, you know, upset with me for whatever reason, I give her the room. But I I want to talk about it. And that was really challenging when we first started it a couple of years ago, but she's getting better at saying, this hurt my feelings or I'm upset about this and here's why. And then what is the action of solution of parent and child coming together in some form of compromise? So that's also really important to me as I parent my children, I'm learning to reparent myself and then in turn parent them better. I love that giving them the room. And, and we often say like, you know, this really upset us and, and allowing them to see that they also are empowered and have the ability to tell anyone else when they're upset and something that hurt their feelings. And if we expect them to do that with their friends, we need to allow them to be able to do that with us. Yep. Absolutely. That's so powerful. And I so agree with that. Your words and affirmations and notes to self on Instagram They hold such a strong presence and they've continuously, they continue to inspire so many people. Where do you get your inspiration from and your enlightened point in your life? I know you mentioned therapy and having such strong therapeutic relationships since you were a teen, but is there anywhere else that you go to for inspiration and inspiration in terms of the kinds of words that you share? Hmm. So I just want to clarify that that therapist who supported me when I was a teen was really my only therapist who supported me the way I needed her to. Mm. So I wasn't like in and out of therapy in the sense that, you know, I had a longtime therapist that I worked with. I worked with her and then she moved and I thought my life was going to be over. (laughs) And she told me, you can do this. You can 
do this. I gave you your emotional toolbox. You can do this. So she I just empowered to, you. Oh my goodness. She empowered me like no other. And I wish I could find her because wow. she really changed my life. But my inspiration really comes from my stories and my work. It also comes from really prolific women who have, whose work continues to inspire me like um, Maya Angelou, Bell Hooks, Oprah Winfrey, Brene Brown, Michelle Obama, all of those women encourage the world to stand in their truth and to stand in their power in their own unique ways. So they are like my mentors in my head, but truly all of my work is a reflection of where I've been mm -hmm. and who I want to be. And they are reminders that I deserve the life that I have. And I've worked really hard to get here and that I want other people to find their worthiness and their love and their being, their, their highest self through the work that I offer and that I share. So if I can be someone's Michelle Obama, you know, Brene Brown, Oprah Winfrey, Maya Angelou, I want to do that. We are never alone in our struggles or in our stories and community is super important to me. So that's what I hope to leave behind. And that is what I'm taking away. That's certainly what you're doing. So that's amazing. And really to close up, I wanted to ask you what's looking up. So I know you have a new book coming out after the rain. What can readers expect to learn from it and from you? How is that book different than some of the others? And what else is looking up for you? What are you hopeful about? Yeah. So After the Rain is coming out on October 13th. I am very excited. It's open for pre-order right now. I'm with Chronicle Books and I am so just thrilled to have this project debut with them. So the book is part memoir and part tool. So there are lessons in there from my life that I've learned and that I carry with me. And there are meditations and reflective questions for readers to take with them. And um, what else is looking up? Oh my goodness. It's so hard right now because of the pandemic. <laughs> like the kids are going bananas in here, but what is looking up is hopefully spending some more time outside, really taking hopefully some road trips and spending some time together. I hope we really get to kind of get away a little bit in the safest way possible for our yeah. family and our community. And my podcast, Hey Girl Podcast, is always looking up amazing stories on there. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to building community with everyone now and always. Love that. Okay. To close up, I always ask each of my guests to pick one of my things are looking up from my deck of cards. I'm going to pick one of the cards at random from the things are looking up deck. Okay. And it'll be your homework for the day. Or oh, nice. Awesome. Well, those are beautiful. I want some. I am going to send them to you. I, I really think after all our whole conversation, you will love them. So they're a deck of 52 cards. Each one has a science-based or holistic prompt that actually increases resiliency and optimism. And they're based on the last decade of my practice. So here we go. This is the one for you. Let's see if it resonates. Okay. Align with your values. Remind yourself of your values often. Take a moment with total free thought to list off three of your core values. What are three things that are most important to you right now? Now take these three values with you into your day. Mm. And I love this card for you because one of the quotes that I pulled that I thought was so powerful, and you actually already touched on it, 
it's something I talk about a lot and it happens to be the random card that I just pulled for you. But you said, stay close to your truth and remember your why. Mm-hmm. And I love this. It is so powerful to know what you truly value and what your truth is and why you are doing the things you are doing. And if you know that about yourself and sort of what we call a calling or your purpose, a deep sense of purpose, it's very difficult to make a wrong decision. Can I answer that? Yeah, sure. Instilling resilience in my children, staying close to my truth always, especially in my work. Not, you know, trying to be something I'm not for the taste buds of others and always being a student of life. I'm a big believer that when we think we arrive, you know, we've stopped learning. There are no arrival points in this work. I find that there are only moments to learn and deepen what we think we already know. Stay close to your truth and remember your why. So beautiful. It's even more beautiful when you say it. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much. Really, it was such an honor to be able to speak with you. I look at your words and they inspire me. And I have been wanting to chat with you for so long and collaborate with you on something. This has been a really beautiful morning for me and I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to listen to this. I would love to have you on my podcast as well. Yes, absolutely. I would love to get you an advanced copy of After the Rain. So I'll share that with Chronicle as well, if you don't mind sharing your email. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.